Hi, and welcome to the Magical History Tour podcast. I'm Hollis Snowd, your tour guide, and today we're going to take a magical history tour of some of the original 13 colonies and briefly see why and how each one came into being. Let's get started. Now, there were quite a lot of differences between the Spanish colonies in America that we talked about in the last episode and the one before it and the English colonies that are going to be planted there. The Spanish settlements, for example, were all royal expeditions. The monarchs will fund the conquistadors, but they keep the majority of the wealth that was found for the crown. English colonies, though granted their charters by the monarchs, were typically private ventures, at least at first. Since it was too expensive for one investor to fund an entire colony, investors would band together and they would purchase shares of stock to form joint stock companies. Any profits the colony made were shared among the investors, and if it failed, they would share in the loss. The joint stock company is very significant because it's kind of the most important organizational innovation of that age of exploration, and they're going to provide the first instruments of English colonization in America. The Spanish colonies were very spread out, all over what is today Mexico, of course, as well as spreading through the Southwest. The Spanish focused on conquering these vast empires, the Aztec and the Inca. The English, on the other hand, had colonies that were more compact. They adjoined one another. The native population of the eastern woodlands was less numerous and a lot more scattered in that area. And they were less wealthy, so there were no vast wealthy empires for the English to conquer. And while Spanish typically sent mostly men, soldiers and conquistadors, some missionaries, only about 10% of the immigrants from Spain were women so that often they will live among and intermarry with the native population. English colonization is going to be family-based. Sometimes entire church groups would come over made up of families. They didn't typically intermarry or mingle with the native population. Rather, they saw them as an impediment to be removed so that the settlers could gain more land. Now, the English had two primary goals, as well as a few lesser goals. Initially, one goal was to colonize so that they would have bases in the New World, so that they could send ships out to attack the Spanish ships and seize their gold. That was a major goal, of course. Another was to provide the mother country with valuable raw materials, things like timber for shipmaking, for example. Another was to establish a new consumer market for English manufactured goods and for luxury items. Now, the English movement across the Atlantic is also going to be tied to social change at home. One of those changes was with the economy. The price of goods is going to rise very sharply as a result of New World inflation. All of that Spanish gold coming into the country and they're spending it and it's going to other countries, that is going to lead to more expensive goods. And unfortunately, English landlords didn't get a raise in pay. So English landlords, people who own the land, are going to seek ways to increase their incomes. Now, at the time, their rents were fixed by custom, so they couldn't just charge more for the land that the peasants worked. Many of them decided to seek profits by converting the farmland that had been used by tenants into pasture land so that sheep could graze there. These sheep, they hoped, would give them profits in the woolen trade. The woolen trade was second only to the fur trade, really. This will dislocate a large number of farmers because you don't need as many tenants if you just have sheep. So between 1500 and 1650, a third of all the common lands in England were what they call enclosed in this way, made into pasture land. It's called the enclosure movement. So homeless people who now, you know, these these are peasants who have worked the land, you know, their ancestors have worked 
worked the land for you know hundreds and hundreds of years are kicked off the land and they have to leave their traditional rural homes behind. So they're dislocated, they're wandering around, they're trying to find work, and they're causing problems. So because of that, a fourth goal of colonization is going to be to help with that homeless problem. And their answer is going to be funneling them to the new world as indentured servants. Now, in 1607, the English are going to try again with Jamestown, and Jamestown will become the first permanent English settlement in North America. The problem is that Jamestown was settled around kind of a swampy area, and so there's lots of mosquitoes, the water's not that great, uh, you end up having lots of dysentery and other problems like that, so Jamestown's going to take a while. (laughs) At the time, the Chesapeake was home to around 14,000 Algonquian Native Americans in several dozen communities. The English saw the Native tribes as savages with no rights, who just kind of wandered around the land but didn't really have a claim to it. Now, in reality, the communities were held together by a very sophisticated political system that was known as the Powhatan Confederacy, and it was led by a chief that the English called Chief Powhatan, That was not his name, but it is what they called him because that's typically what the British would do. They would come over and say, I can't pronounce your name, so I'm just going to call you this. And so Powhatan had mixed feelings about the English. He had had bad experiences with the Spanish at one point, but he was still eager to trade for European supplies and weapons so that he could expand his power to nearby tribes. And that's going to win out. So he will allow the outpost of Jamestown to be built. The colonists were made up of adventurers, gentlemen, 'er ne'er-do-wells. The first group comes over and their intentions are to find gold and a Northwest Passage. It didn't matter to them if the land wasn't that great for agriculture because they weren't intending on farming it in the first place. They were going to find gold and make their fortune, that sort of thing. When they found neither gold or a Northwest Passage, they will spend most of their time drinking and gambling. This group that came over was not prepared to take care of themselves. They uh, didn't know how to farm, really. A lot of them were third and fourth sons. Uh, At the time in England, they had something called the law of primogeniture, and that basically meant that the oldest son inherited everything because they didn't ever want to break the land up into smaller pieces because that would mean lessening a family's wealth. So the oldest son inherits everything. This is why when you read the Jane Austen novels, these you know young ladies are left with almost nothing. They have to rely on their older brother or marry well or whatever. It's part of the law of primogeniture. And so you get the first son who inherits it all. The second son uh, will typically train for a profession, and then they'll try to find something for the third and fourth sons to do, possibly the army, uh, maybe train for a profession, but they're they're not likely to get land, and there's no land available to purchase. They really don't have a way to make their own way in Europe at this time. So they're coming to make their fortune. They're going to get land, and they're hopefully, they think, going to find gold and pay people to farm the land for them, because they never had to farm in the first place themselves. They always had peasants who did it for them. 
So that's the type of people that are coming over, a lot of them. When some colonists who weren't doing so well tried to steal food from the native tribes because they didn't plant, they didn't plant anything, the natives ambushed and killed them. In fact, the original leader of Jamestown, a man named John Ratcliffe, was captured and skinned alive by native women using oyster shells and then burned. John Smith will take over as leader at that point and he's able to smooth things over with the natives. The natives will have to help them survive the winter because of as I mentioned, none of them are farmers and they hadn't really planted anything in preparation. Raw wilderness was way too demanding for them. They had no experience foraging. They couldn't compete as hunters and gatherers with the natives. And more colonists will arrive to shore up the numbers of Jamestown. But Powhatan begins to reconsider helping them because every year the same thing happens. They don't plant, they don't help themselves, and they try to rely on the native tribes who have to kind of handle them. So Powhatan now begins to see them not as traders, but as invaders. So in the winter of 1609 and 1610, Powhatan cut them off. He's like, nope, we're not helping you anymore. And because they weren't prepared, about more than 400 people starved, and some of them did resort to attempted cannibalism. There were only 60 settlers left when spring arrived. New leader, George Percy, was actually forced to execute one man for partaking of his wife after she died. So it was not good in Jamestown. So the Virginia Company, when they find out that the native tribes hadn't helped the colonists at the time, began a war with them. And so the colonists will attack native villages and kill everybody that they find. And this intermittent battle will continue until about 1613. And that's when one of Powhatan's daughters, Pocahontas, everyone knows who she is, was captured. To free Pocahontas, the chief will sign a peace treaty agreement. And that was sealed by the marriage of Pocahontas to one of the leading colonists, John Rolfe. She had fallen in love with John Rolfe. Now at this point, it did seem like England may become an inclusionist colony like France and Spain where they intermarry with the native tribes. This was kind of the the famous marriage there. So Rolfe will take his new bride and their son to England. They were welcomed as though they were American royalty. Unfortunately, Pocahontas will die of disease before she was able to return home. Her father will abdicate his throne and eventually die of despair. Once they realized that they needed to do something, the Virginia colonists will search for some sort of commodity, and they'll finally find it in tobacco. Now, the first known European smoker was a man named Rodrigo de Jerez, who sailed with Columbus. He was jailed by the Spanish for like seven years because of this bad habit. It was later introduced to England by Sir Francis Drake in the 1580s, and by the 1610s, there was kind of a craze for smoking in England, and that created a strong demand. So John Rolfe, husband of Pocahontas, was able to develop a mild hybrid of what the native tribes smoke, and tobacco is going to provide the Virginia Company with the first returns on their investments. Once the colonists realize that tobacco makes a lot of money, they start planting it everywhere. And they even kind of quit planting food, which they had learned to plant corn and they raised pigs and that was their primary sustenance. But they realized, wow, we can make tobacco and make a lot of money. So they kind of quit doing that and they just start planting tobacco everywhere. In fact, the very streets of Jamestown were planted with the crop colony that's recently in trouble because there wasn't food is now neglecting food production 
for the cultivation of a leaf that you burn. So authorities feared losing control. One of them lamented that the settlers, and I quote, greediness after great quantities of tobacco causeth them after five or six years continually to remove and therefore neither build good homes, fence their grounds, or plant any orchards. So tobacco becomes for a little while problematic, but once they get the hang of it and they do start growing food and tobacco, they start doing well. Now tobacco products, however, do require a lot of hard labor and it also quickly depletes the soil. So you really need large tracts of land. So land and labor will become a huge issue in Virginia. Now, the Virginia Company will institute what are called headright grants. That's where they award these large plantations to wealthy colonists on the condition that they bring workers from England at their own expense. So a lot of people who had been displaced by the enclosure movement and were homeless were interested in coming to Virginia for work. So that's where we get the beginning of funneling homeless over to work in the colonies. Now in 1618, the population of Jamestown was about 700. So the Virginia company will send like 3,500 more people to populate it. In 1622, there were still only a little over 1,200 people alive. They had lost over 3,000 people in only three years. By 1624, over 14,000 people had immigrated to Jamestown, yet the population of Jamestown was still only a little over 1,100 because of the high mortality rate. But in 1624, Virginia will become a royal colony and they will gradually start growing their population. Now, these people who were coming over to work in Virginia were what we call indentured servants. And three quarters of the English migrants that came were coming as indentured servants. Indentured servants were people who, in exchange for the cost of transportation, you know, to get there, they will contract to labor for a landowner for a length of time. Most of the people coming as indentured servants were young, unskilled males who typically would contract for between two and seven years. Now, you did have some who were skilled craftsmen or some unmarried women who would come over. You also had orphans who would be sent over. They were not sent over to be adopted. They were sent over to be chosen as people to work for you, and they were usually expected to work for the landowner that uh, takes them in until they turn 21. So that could be a really long time depending upon how old you were going over as an orphan. Now if there were a few convicts who would come over and they would be bound to service by the courts for up to 14 years because you had to pay for your trip over which was like the seven years but then they're also working off their jail time so they could have longer ones. The landowners had to feed, clothe, and shelter these servants but the labor was really hard and many of them were not treated well. Some did try to escape, but if you failed in your escape and were caught, which was likely because, hey, where are you going to go? There's nowhere to go. Uh, You could maybe stow away and go back home, but that would be about it. Uh, If they failed in escaping, their labor time would be doubled. So it was not good for them. Now, African slaves were introduced to the Chesapeake area in 1619, but they were a lot more expensive than indentured servants. So in 1680, they still make up less than 7% of the population. Two out of every five indentured servants will die during their indenture. Now, if they did survive, they were eligible for what we call freedom dues, which consisted of a set of clothing, a set of tools, and a gun if you were a male, 
or a spinning wheel instead of a gun if you were a female. And that was supposed to get them started in their new lives. Now at the beginning, the freedom dues also included a piece of land. So you would have something to work with. But gradually as land becomes more needed, they stop putting land in the freedom dues. So these people are being let go with almost nothing, with the clothes on their backs and um, some tools and a gun or something like that. So then they have to figure out what they're going to do because they don't have a job anymore. Some of them will go west looking for land. A lot more will start to try to find a job and save their money and try to return home to England because they've been treated so badly and had so few prospects in the new world. These former indentured servants don't have anything. I mean, some of them are living in caves, A lot of them end up practically homeless if they did choose to stay in America. So by 1676, a quarter of the free white men in Virginia were landless. There's a lot of social unrest. You have vagabonds wandering the countryside, engaging in petty crimes in order to survive. And the planter elite class basically made it worse because they will pass laws stripping people who don't own land of their political rights and things like that. So basically, if you don't own land, you can't vote. So you can't help yourself. So it becomes a big problem. But that is the beginning of Virginia. Now, let's look at the second colony, Maryland. In 1632, King Charles will grant 10 million acres to one family, the family of Sir George Calvert. He will later be known as Lord Baltimore. (laughs) And Calvert family will name their colony Maryland after the wife of the king. Queen Mary. So the boundaries of the settlement were really vague, and you see a lot of controversies over them that are not definitively resolved until like the 1760s, when, if you'll you'll recognize this, Charles Mason and Jeremiah Dixon will survey their famous boundary line between Pennsylvania and Maryland, so the Mason-Dixon line, and that's not resolved until the 1760s. So when people come over, they don't know what the land is like, and they'll kind of say, oh, generally here to here is your land, but it's not been surveyed. It's really not well done. It's very vague. So we'll see that that causes lots of problems later. But the first colonists of Maryland will found St. Mary's in 1634 near the mouth of the Potomac River. Maryland is going to be similar to Virginia in that they grow tobacco and they have similar economies and things like that. But Maryland is a proprietary colony, which means that there's sole ownership by one person or in this case, one family. The plan for Maryland was to carve the land into what they called feudal manors that would provide them with annual rents. So they're basically trying to establish a form of feudalism, really, which seems good for them. They encourage settlement by Catholics, and at first Catholics will come to dominate the politics in Maryland. Now, they're still similar to Virginia. Like I said, they farm tobacco. They end up doing headright grants because uh, by the 1670s, they really only have like 15,000 people in Maryland. And they have to change that whole idea of manorial estates because if you want to draw people to the new world, you can't really say, hey, come be a peasant over here instead of being a peasant in Europe because uh, that's not really very different. So they had to start offering them land and small farms. So they end up starting to do do the headright grants. Catholicism too is going to end up not being very dominant there as Lord Baltimore had intended. And in fact, at one point in Maryland, even though it started as a Catholic colony, uh, Catholicism will be banned for a time. Every time there was religious turmoil back in England, you had religious issues in Maryland. And Maryland will not actually get freedom of religion until after the Revolutionary War. 
So those are the first two of the English colonies that actually managed to stick. And on the next episode, we're going to talk about the New England colonies, Plymouth Colony and the Mayflower, and then the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and recommend the Magical History Tour podcast to a friend. See you next time.